church, it's that time to get started. As you get settled in and turn your devices or your Bible to Acts 22, we are along with the Apostle Paul in the middle of quite the ordeal. That Apostle Paul and the gospel, he's gotten himself into um, a little bit of an ordeal, a problem, because he's shining the light there. People aren't putting up with it. And so we're a lot to learn, a lot to learn. We have the same calling as the uh, early disciples, and we have the same environment, uh, a world that... uh, (laughs) doesn't receive well uh, the absolute truth of God's word. So let's pray. Father, now we ask, Lord, that you would help us by your word. We know it is God-breathed. It's not from any man. It's because, God, your Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of those who you revealed this beautiful truth to. We pray for ears that can hear eyes that can see, a heart that can understand, Father God, so that we would be better equipped to be pleasing and to do your will in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. I think it's true that most people don't enjoy having to repeat themselves. And it's usually not easy to hide our annoyance uh, for having to do so, like the Roman soldier here in Acts chapter 22. He keeps having to repeat the same question over and over again, and he's not very happy about that. You'll recall chaos has broken out in the temple there in a holiday-packed Jerusalem. An angry mob surrounds the apostle Paul and they're beating him and the scripture says they were trying to kill him. Uh, The Roman commander intervenes and he asks a simple question, who is this man and what has he done to deserve this? And the crowd's no help, you know, some shouting one thing, others shouting something else. And you'll recall from last time that Paul offers to clear it up. He says, let me address the crowd. And the soldier actually lets him do that. And to his amazement, the crowd quieted down and listened attentively. Things were going so well until Paul said something that the crowd despised. It was kind of like stepping on a landmine, and boom, the crowd exploded again, pandemonium again, and they tried to kill him again. And so the commander, perplexed, you know, he starts asking again, what just happened? Why are you so angry at him? And he still can't get any answers, so he's annoyed. So he says, I'll just flog the answer out of him. So they prepare, as you recall, to flog Paul. They tie him to the pole. They bear his back that's already been scarred a lot of times through previous persecution. And as they're about to scourge him, Paul points out, Is it legal to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been charged with a crime, let alone convicted? And so at that, turns out that the commander's not going to get what he's looking for. Any answer out of Paul here, uh, because they can't flog him. The crowds are going to be dismissed, as we saw. That's where we left off. 
right there. The crowds were all going away. And now we pick back up again. Uh, Paul may have gotten uh, himself out of a flogging by the grace of God, uh, but he's not out of custody, nor is he out of harm's way, as we're going to see. And in fact, this problem is not going to resolve until the end of, cha- uh, of the book of Acts. So we've got about seven chapters of a problem here, and we're going to get through one of those chapters uh, this morning, Lord willing. So we're going to buckle our seatbelts, and we're going for a ride with the Apostle Paul. We're going to learn some valuable insights, the ups and downs of the Christian life here. So the morning after that riot, where twice they tried to kill him, the commander, I've been calling him Tony, just because he's a Roman a Italian, as I like to joke. So I call him Tony. Tony, is that okay with you? All right, good. There are several of you, Tony. How about you in the back, Tony? Yeah, good. Two thumbs up from two Tonys. All right, so I call the commander Tony, whatever. And uh, he's Tony's still scratching his head. He's trying to figure out, you know, he's got paperwork. You know, it probably says uh, accused of or crime committed. He's got nothing to say still. And so it's the next day, and this happens, verse 30. The next day since the commander, Tony, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused. (laughs) He still wants to know by the Jews, the Jewish unbelievers, because there are plenty of Jews that had converted to Christ. These are the unbelievers who are hostile. He released him, Tony did, and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, to assemble. Then he brought Paul in and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias, a different Ananias from anyone you think you know in the Bible, at this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth, punched him in the face. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) You sit here, you sit there to judge me according to the law of Moses, the scripture, yet you yourself violate the scripture by commanding that I be struck. There's chapter and verse for that. You don't do that. Those who were standing near Paul said, "Ah, you dare to insult God's high priest? He's the high priest, man. Paul said, brothers, whoops, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, and then he quotes the law of Moses, that he's now walking back his remarks. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And there you have it. We'll pause there. Like I said, we are going to spill over, and we have spilled over into chapter 23. We'll try to get to the end of the chapter. We do hang out here for a a little bit, uh, trying to get our bearings, and, and the rest of the narrative kind of moves a little bit quicker, just heads up on that. So third time's the charm for the commander, or so he hopes to get the information he wants, so he has a great idea. Uh, so let's begin, note takers, with the slap, all right? And uh, here now, there's a reasonable, reasonable attempt to get 
some answers. Verse 30 tells you uh, what he's convening. The Romans have power over the Jews. So the Romans are telling the Jewish high court, you need to convene and conduct a hearing of sorts uh, to get some answers. And so he does that. Now, the Jewish high court, most of you are familiar with the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders, made up mostly of Pharisees and Sadducees uh, who hate each other. Uh, The Sadducees are really in power. Uh, The Pharisees are the minority. The Pharisees are the Bible scholars who are mired in unbelief and pride and have shipwrecked but doctrinally sound. The Sadducees are the corrupt priests who are unbelievers. They don't even believe there's a resurrection or a heaven. And uh, so those are the two uh, factions there that are now assembling. And so the the high priest there, uh, his name is Ananias, uh, but he uh, is about seven high priests out from that infamous Caiaphas uh, during Jesus' trial, which happened about 30 years earlier with the same counsel. Now, if some of the men at Jesus' trial were in their 30s or, or 40s, which is quite possible, of course, then some of them are actually in the room again now. And the, this is the group that uh, in the early chapters when, the, when, when uh, the church was born in Acts chapter 2, they arrested this same group, arrested Peter, James, and John, had them flogged. You recall, this is, these are the bad guys. And they take their place, they form a semicircle and put the accused in the center. So this is what we're picturing here. Um, and so it makes sense. You know, Tony understands there's some sort of internal conflict among the religious community. So uh, get them together. Maybe it'll throw some light on the situation. But listen, it won't. It doesn't. Tony's not going to get what he's after. So we have to tell him. We're going to tell Tony, listen, you can fill in your paperwork with this. Uh, he's broken penal code 777. And, and what that involves, we'll try to break it to you gently as we can, Tony. Uh, here's the evil that he's done. He loves God. He loves the word of God. He has a hope of going to heaven. He knows that God loved him and sent his son to die for him. And that whoever believes in him will live forever. So not only does he want to go to heaven, but he wants other people to go to heaven too by trusting in Jesus, surrendering their lives to Jesus because without him, they have no hope. Guilty as charged. He's a Christian and he's sharing truth in a world that doesn't want to hear it. And Tony, listen, this makes people, some people really, really mad. Mad enough to form a mob, mad enough to reach out with their bare hands and kill someone. It makes them mad. So let's get to the punch now that we've informed Tony, right? Now that he knows, you know, the commander. Uh, The punch. Well, they assemble. They're all like hyenas. They're all around him. Paul's ready. He's not intimidated. Look what the Holy Spirit tells you. He locked his gaze on them. There's this pause. And notice who's in charge. What, what is the Roman? Are the Romans moderating? Where's the Romans' voice? Oh, where's the setup? Who's the MC? Why aren't the Jews saying something first? Well, it's because there's no guilty charge. 
there's nothing he's done wrong to, 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 to be driving this thing. So Paul understands, you know, I didn't get called in before them. They got called in by God before me. So he, he gives them a gaze. One writer said it this way. He said, um, there's, there's this, uh, the look, there it is. There's something that Paul communicated with this Holy Spirit-inspired gaze that can never be translated into words. But know this, they heard him loud and clear. And so, uh, yeah, so here's, here's what's going on. He says, brothers, my fellow Hebrews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we share this. We're family. I've always tried to serve God with a good conscience. And that's the provocative remark that's going to get him in some trouble here. His claim isn't this. He's not saying, you know, I've always lived perfectly before God. He's saying this. Ever since I was a kid, I had a sensitive conscience toward God. Always. Even when I was opposing Christians, I was still in my conscience. I was trying to do what I thought ignorant at the time as I was, uh, that I was pleasing God. So I've always been the kind of man that wants to do what's right. And when I do sin, I'm quick to ask forgiveness and get right with God and follow my conscience. That's all he means, right? And so this infuriates in verse 2, the high priest, he's thinking, a clean conscience before God? How dare he? This Gentile-loving, pork-eating, Sabbath-breaking, traitor to Moses and the Jewish faith. Why, I ought to have him punched in the face. And he orders it to be done. Verse 3, which sparks Paul's spirited, shall we call it, reaction. Paul is heated, no doubt. There's a little bit of controversy here. Why is he heated? Well, number one, it hurt. You know, you don't, please picture a guy, a bailiff, okay? He works out. He, he's a security dude. He did come over and go, Whoa, you know? He, sorry, should I do that again in slow motion? No, I don't think I will. He came over and he punched the guy so hard that he either broke a tooth, he could break his nose, he could break his jaw, he could have knocked him out. You, he's bleeding. Busted a tooth right through the, the lip. So through the blood and everything, Paul reacts. And number two, it's, it's illegal what he did. Jewish law forbid corporal punishment of, of someone not convicted. And he's not even charged. Not even charged, man. So question you know, was Paul right or wrong here? Well, it's not as cut and dried as you think. Um, this impassioned reaction, the strong words. Commentators are split. Some rush to defend him and some rush to take him to task a little bit. And some are in the middle, like me. Uh, clearly, he's frazzled. You know, uh, he does walk back the insult, you see. Now, uh, in, uh, because he gets some information right there. So, yeah, think about his situation. Days before, they were trying to kill him. They, they were mauling him. They were beating him to death when he was uh, extricated, right? He's injured. 
He's hurt. It's only been not even 24 hours, right? And he's under unspeakable pressure. The highest authority in the world is Rome. And in the state of Israel is the Sanhedrin. So he, he's absolutely under the scrutiny of the highest powers on earth. And there he is in the middle of Rome looking in on him and the Jewish authorities as well. And so how about Jesus' example when he stood in their midst and was struck on the mouth as well? What did Jesus do? Well, he protested. He said, if I said something wrong, and I quote, testify as to what it was, but if I spoke correctly, why did you strike me? In other words, he calls the guy out, and he says, what you did was not right. Now, isn't that Paul's point here? You're the judge. You're appointed there to uphold law, and then in front of everybody, you break the law by ordering me punched in the face. What you did was wrong. Paul, of course, then does this. <laughs> he goes a step further, doesn't, doesn't he? And so did the Lord on some occasions. Uh, he gets smacked upside the face and he smacks back. Contrary to much of the New Testament. So we have to work this out here. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. So, <laughs> you know, the whitewashed wall was an idiom that Jesus used with a little change in the phrase uh, there with these same men. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, not the wall. The idea is the same. Jesus was pointing out that at Passover time, they would whitewash over all of the graves to keep people from stepping on them. And so, uh, you know, they made sure that they were decorated and pretty on the outside. And he said, that's like you guys. You look good on the outside with your religious robes, but inside you're like pretty <laughs> coffins that inside, you know, there's a whole bunch of rot going on. The whitewashed wall is a wall that was teetering or needed repairing or was dirty. And so instead of repairing it properly, they would just put lots of coats of thick white paint on there. You have it. And so he's saying, you're a wall that's about to go over, but you look nice on the outside. But see, God is going to push this wall over, which God does. He is the most wicked of all, all the historians say that Ananias, this high priest, is the most wicked that Israel ever had and that he was enriched. He was the richest man among them because he stole from the temple treasuries. You see, so this is all probably common knowledge and what's fueling uh, Paul's response. I don't know if you can relate to seeing corruption and corrupt leaders strut about and say obnoxious things. I don't know if you can relate to how that might cause you to want to say something uh, negative about them. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure you don't struggle with that. <laughs> and so, yeah, what's our takeaway here? Uh, well, one writer said, well, if you had to choose between Paul and the high priest, that who behaved better, then we know that the answer is Paul wins that contest. Uh, one writer also said this, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? 
for sinful humans to discern correctly between what's called righteous anger and the human anger that does not produce the righteousness God desires. Brother James, chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that. So my prayer is this for all of us, that God grant us wisdom, discernment, and self-control, that in our anger we do not sin. Now, if, if Paul did something wrong there, that's between him and God because we don't see God's opinion quite clearly there. Uh, certainly how he responds to being rebuffed is 10 stars all the way and probably is what prompts the Pharisees' hearts to be open to what he has to say in the coming uh, paragraph. 10 stars all the way, verse 4. Uh, they say, you have the gall to speak against God's high priest, and he walks it back. Whoops. He says, I had no idea that was him. In other words, he's saying, I just assumed that the high priest would be the one saying that. You know, the high priest would never do such a foolish thing. So I just assumed wherever that voice came from, it couldn't be him. But now that I know that, I, if I would have known the high priest was speaking, I should have respected the verse in the Bible that says, do not revile the, ru- revile the ruler of your people. More than anything those men will remember about that day is here's a man who quoted the law of Moses and came under it and ate humble pie and owned his own uh, misstep there and apologized There's nothing more powerful in the world and nothing more difficult than to humble yourself and to say those three little words. I am sorry. That unlocks people's hearts. It restores relationships that have been struggling for years and years and years with a simple step of faith, God, here I am. The word says this, I did that, I'm sorry. Wow, so moving on, we've got a couple paragraphs now, six through 10 there. Then Paul, (laughs) so controversy in the first paragraph, controversy here, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And Paul said, thank you, Jesus. Sorry. Verse 8, you know, take the heat off of him for a second. You know? So Luke lets you in on knowing what the problem was there. The Sadducees say that there's no resurrection because there's no afterlife and that there are neither angels nor spirits. They're essentially unbelievers, the, high, the priests and the high priests. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, so uh, yeah, we're going to go on. Verse 9. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, that means the Bible teachers, who were the Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. So great uproar, argued vigorously. There's a lot of heat in the room. 
We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? They know the testimony. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, from the slap to the strategy here. So Paul makes use of the little interruption of the high priest's assault upon him to change tactics. He's like kind of like a drowning man just grasping for something to hang on to. So he's thinking, who can I get to here? Who's, who's potentially on my side with a sympathetic heart? The Pharisees, brother Pharisees. And so he's got this potential kinship going on here. And so he opens up and he shares that they have something in common. Listen, brothers, my own father's a Pharisee like you. And then he says this, I am a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee now. Well, see, you could be a Pharisee. You could get saved and remain a Pharisee because doctrinally, they were doctrinally sound. And as I said earlier, they were just mired in legalism and pride and unbelief, but they had the facts all staring them in the face. And so like Nicodemus and other Pharisees who are noted in the scriptures as having believed in Christ, uh, Paul says, I am. I, I guess it's like being a Marine. Once you're a Marine, always a Marine, right? Once a Pharisee, always a Pharisee for Jesus. The word just means separated. He's separated now, and he often calls himself separated unto God uh, to preach the gospel. And so and that's what's going on. Now, uh, <laughs> the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, hated each other, right? But uh, they come together with a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so for Jesus, they became friends and, and even with Paul, but not when he called them out. He's very savvy. Now, <clears throat> what's Paul doing here? He's using some street smarts here. You know, the Lord did say of his people, he said, I'd like you to be wise as a serpent, shrewd, shrewd, like a snake and harmless as a dove. In other words, could you, you could be thinking with street smarts minus the vulgarity, minus the low class thing, but be savvy. And so he's savvy and he knows that these guys believe in the resurrection. So here's what he's going to say. He says, I am a Pharisee like you. I come from a line of Pharisees, and my hope, the reason I'm in trouble here is because I believe in what our Pharisees believe that they don't believe in the resurrection. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, now I'm a Pharisee for Christ. And what the whole bottom line is the resurrection. The resurrection that Messiah in our scriptures is foretold that had to come and die for the sins of the world and then rise from the dead, defeating death on our behalf. And it's not just the resurrection of Christ that's so important. Everyone in this room will be resurrected, no matter where you end up. Every single soul ever born into a human body will one day in that body stand before God, either to enter eternal life or to be judged and to perish. But everybody will be raised from the dead. So here's what he's saying. I'm a Pharisee, fellow Pharisees, and you know what the big trouble is? 
It's that Jesus appeared to me, opened my eyes, and now I have the hope of going to heaven. I know how to get there, and I'm telling other people to come to heaven with us, to be resurrected as well into eternal life. And that's why I stand here accused. And so uh, looking at verse 9, and there's the great uproar because they've heard his testimony that the Lord appeared. So they say, so what if it's true? What if there was some spirit from heaven or some angel that, that knocked him to the ground on the Damascus road? What if? And the adrenaline, they're no longer in their right minds. It, you know, pandemonium, I mean, it's road rage in religious robes in the courtroom. They're just gone crazy. And I love this part. It says in verse 10, is it there? They thought, Commander Tony thinks, oh no, I better get in there and bring in the jaws of life and get this guy out. Why? Because he thinks he's going to be torn in two. What's happening? The Pharisees grab his arm and say, he's with us. You know, he believes in the resurrection. He's over here. He's a good man. What if? And the Sadducees grab his other arm and say, oh no, oh no, he's a heretic. He's coming with us. And they're both got him. He's <laughs> like this. And so the commander has to come to his rescue because the commander thinks this is so heated they might actually rip him apart. That Middle Eastern zeal, no one does that like a Middle Easterner. It's their drama is in the DNA, that's for sure. And I share a little bit of it. So verses 11 through 15, we're going to, yeah. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome the next morning. The Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink water even until they had murdered Paul. More than 40 of these madmen were involved in this silly plot. They went to the chief priests and the, the elders, the pastors there. We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we murdered an innocent man. Now, what we want you pastors to do is to lie, make up a story, you know, uh, petition the commander to bring him before you, uh, pretending that you want more accurate information about his case, and we're ready to kill him before he gets here. So let's talk about this. Now, verse 11. Paul's been through a lot. He's been through a lot. And you know what? Nobody's visiting him. We'll find out later that he can have visitors because someone visits him. And he's a Roman citizen. They have visitors. All through the next five years, he has visitors. He can have visitors. There's no Christians there. Nobody from the church who got him into this trouble, they're not visiting. Nobody on the missions team is there. Someone does show up, and first of all, it's the Lord. And notice with me the most beautiful verse in the Bible. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. The Lord manifested himself. He made a personal appearance and stood near to him in the barracks. He's second-guessing himself. He's mauled. His lip is swollen out to here. He's like, well, what did I snap like that for? 
Oh, my word. Why did I bring up the Gentiles the day before? Oh, and the gospel was supposed to go out, and then I'm, I'm going to die here. I just know it. Nobody knows. <laughs> you know? He started. I don't know if you know that song, but I think you do. <laughs> and so what? So God, who is near, quoting, to the brokenhearted and comes close to those to save those who are crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. He comes in, stands close, and says, I'm here. It's okay. Listen, I pulled some strings. <laughs> you're going to get to Rome. I've got some work for you to do in Rome. So as long as you're here, yeah, nothing to worry about. You're going to Rome. Take heart. Come, be comforted, Paul. You're not alone. The one who sees the sparrow fall is here with you. Somebody who's been washed in the blood of his son. Your feelings will tell you he's a million miles away. They are not dependable, especially when you're under it. But the scriptures tell the truth that he is close by the father of all comfort. There he is. He's doing a, a work in his heart. So one writer said, I think it's impossible to say in words what encouragement that gave Paul for the next two years he'll be imprisoned in Caesarea, then he will take a prison ship to Rome, and then he will spend two more years incarcerated in Rome where God is going to do beautiful ministry through him. But the whole time in his head, he remembered the Lord God appeared in person to him. And he was leaning on that. Now, just let me tell you, that nearness to Paul in that moment is the way, from God's point of view, he is with us today, especially when you're in that place of need. So, you know, stop singing that song, nobody knows, and start and start singing another song, something about thanking Jesus for his faithfulness to you. And so, yeah, the plot here, the plot, it's the silliest thing I've ever read in the Bible. It's very serious, uh, verse 12, they're not to taste a morsel of food or drink a drop of water until they kill him. Uh, here's what it's an Old Testament oath like that sounded like. May God strike me dead. May his curse fall on me and my head and the heads of my family if I break this vow that I will not eat until I kill him. I have written down here, these guys are going to lose a lot of weight. <laughs> and, and then I, I just think a, a, great, really, a great diet plan, when I was talking about losing weight earlier, this would be a great diet plan. Make a promise not to eat until God fails to keep one of his promises. <laughs> you will lose a lot of weight. You will hit your target weight, you know. And then some there. And so, yeah, come on, the plan. Uh, the second, and this is how it works. The second God says, hey, take courage. You're going to Rome. I pulled some strings because I'm God. And I already know what's going to happen. It's a done deal, man. Rest in my love. The second, the next verse, unbeknownst to Paul, he falls asleep with a smile on his face and peace of God in his heart. He wakes up. There's 40 assassins 
who will not eat or drink a drop of water until they kill him. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. And so uh, the plan is, look, work with us, people. You know, we'll do the deed. We'll do the deed for God and make up a story. And when he comes through the barracks into those tiny little narrow streets of Jerusalem, there's nowhere to go. And we'll jump on him and kill him. So Satan puts a plan in motion and the Lord moves to thwart it. Love these next two paragraphs, 16 to 22. But now check this miracle out because this is a miracle. But when the son of Paul's sister, oh, Paul has a sister. (laughs) When Paul's nephew heard of the plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul, yeah, because Paul can have visitors. A lot of people didn't want to go visit him, apparently. Sorry. I'm rough on them. I'm sorry. 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions. He's in charge of 100 soldiers and said, please take this young man uh, to the commander. He has something to tell him. Take him to Tony. So he took him to Tony. The centurion (laughs) said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man. So he, the word can mean a boy or a young man. He's certainly not older than 11 or 12 because a military guy doesn't take the hand of another guy and pull him over to the side. It just doesn't happen. Sorry. I got a couple, couple right? Deputy? Deputies? <laughs> yeah, they both nodded their head and said, please continue on and <laughs> stop talking to me. (laughs) The commander (laughs) took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in for a second because there's 40 guys waiting to ambush him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink before they kill him. They're ready. Uh, they are ready now waiting for your consent. And the commander said, okay, that's great. Thank you for that. Cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you reported this to me because then your life is in danger, kid, and the plan to rescue your uncle will be uh, hindered. So the plot of the Jews, man, yeah, the fact that Paul seems to have nine lives now, uh, and he keeps slipping through their fingers, it's really irritating them, and so now they, 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 they do this curse, uh, may God uh, strike us dead if we don't get to him. And so, but here's the thing, it's destined to fail. Why? There is no weapon formed against you that will prosper, says the Lord, right? So when you're doing the will of God, you got a job to do, and God has you here for a reason. Until you accomplish that, you're indestructible. And so it's a beautiful display here, the miracle of God's providence, Providence is the word that shows how God is at work behind the scenes 
uh, directing our footsteps and ordering our paths and sort of in the everyday incidentals, like a delay in traffic, a chance meeting, a missed flight. But somehow he gets the right people at the, the right places at the right time, and boom, his will is accomplished. And this is a miracle uh, that happens here. What are the odds? What are the odds that Paul's sister happens to be in Jerusalem? Does she live in? We don't know anything about Paul. What a tantalizing little tidbit to throw at us. You know, we know that he's born in South Eastern Turkey. We know his father was a Pharisee. We know he's a Roman citizen. That's it. We don't know anything about his private life, except now he's got a sister, and she seems favorably disposed, maybe, to the gospel. Well, this boy certainly is. And so, yeah, this is pretty amazing stuff. How God does that? How does he do things like that? And all of you, if, if I were to say, grab a mic, everybody, come on up and tell how God just did an amazing thing, how he put this person, and you missed your flight, you shouldn't have been on the next flight, but it happens to be you sat next to the lady who's now your wife. You know, that's those kinds of stories. I've got a million of those, and so do you. One that's popping up for nominating itself to be told is a sun a Sunday uh, I decided we Barb and I were like we're gonna plant a church we were on staff at Calvary Chapel Petaluma at the time and it was just a thought just a thought nobody knew just me and Barb so I, I said Barb today after church I'm gonna bounce it off of the lead guys and lead guy and see what he says so I'm in line to talk to him. I've told the story before, and a couple people are chatting with him after the service, and I'm in line, and some dude is next to me bugging me, talking to me, and I'm trying to form my sentences and prep myself and keep my eye on the line and all of this, and he's like, hey, hey, Ross, how do you know? How do you know when God's talking to you? How do you know when? I'm like, well, he's talking to you. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> So he says, how do you know? How do you know Like, if he, if he wants you to just do something like a church, to plant a church? What if, what if God wanted you to plant a church? And I said, wants me to plant a church or you to plant a church? He says, well, uh, you, me. And he's talking about himself. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. You're going to plant a church. up. Nobody knows. And then he says, well, I was driving through Sebastopol. I was driving through Sebastopol the other day and saw a building and thought, that would make a great building for a church, a church plant. But how do you know if it's God? I'm like, okay, we want to plant a church in Sebastopol. We've been driving around looking at church buildings. Nobody knows this. And I'm about to go tell the pastor this. And this dude out of nowhere is talking to me in my face like this. How do you know? How do you know if it's God? And I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, tell Barb this. And it's like uh, one sign after another. How does God do that? He makes sure that we're in the right line together at the right time. And this is what he does with this. What is this kid doing in Jerusalem and around the temple? He's probably in rabbinic school like his uncle. Boarding school. That's where they were raised around all of those people. That would make perfect sense why they don't think him think of him as a threat. This is some little kid. And they're so self-absorbed and they so, so want to kill Paul that they don't even care how loud they're talking. 
So this, Paul, this guy sitting here, this young man sitting there doing his homework, kicking a ball. I don't know what he's doing. I can't wait to find out <laughs> how God did that. And the guys are like, who cares? You know, whatever. He's just a kid. Yeah. He happens to be Paul's nephew. How crazy is that? And so and the nephew warns Paul. Paul tells the centurion. And uh, Tony takes him aside to a quiet spot. And then he gets the download. Now let's finish up. We're just going to race through the last three slides. Then he calls two of his centurions. He gets the news, Tony, the commander, and ordered them, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to 60 miles north to Caesarea, the other uh, Roman outpost, at nine tonight, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He, of course, has replaced Pontius Pilate by seven people. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias. Now that's who Tony is. All along, I thought it was Tony. It's actually Claude. All right. <laughs> This is Claude writing, he's the commander, I should speak more graciously of him, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came to the rescue for I had learned he was a Roman citizen. Oh, do you remember the story? This is not totally true. <laughs> he was about to flog him Right, and Paul had to say, hey, what you're doing is going to get you guys into a lot of trouble. Then he finds out. Then he releases them. But no, and there's a little revision going on here. you know. <clears throat> so when I knew he was a Roman citizen, I rescued him. <laughs> I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin, and I found out the accusation had to do with questions about their religious law. There's nothing there against uh, deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. In other words, this is your, this is your problem now. All right, tag, you're it. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought, and brought him as far as Antipatris is 20 miles out. That's as far as they felt, okay, we're going to spend the night. And then the next day they let 200 of them go home uh, while they returned, uh, they returned home to the barracks. Verse 33, when the cavalry uh, arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed it, handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked, what province was he from? Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want this drama. This is a big deal. All of those soldiers, this is a 911, like on steroids, right? He's like, uh, what? Maybe I can sidestep this drama and pass it off to somebody else. Uh, where exactly are you from? Oh, it's my jurisdiction. Learning he was from Southeast Turkey, he said, I guess I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So let's kind of go back to the, this 
overkill of a detachment of 470 soldiers. You know, when the kids are little, sometimes dad flexes muscles and the kids are like, especially the boys are like, whoa, wow, you know. And uh, God sometimes, I think, likes to flex his muscles for his kids to say, wow, God, you're amazing. So Paul is smiling because he's surrounded by 470. He, he's got 200 soldiers around him. He's in the middle. He's got 70 horsemen around them. And around them, 200 men with spears. And Paul's in the middle going, God, come on. <laughs> you didn't have to do this. I mean, you showed up. I trust you. The Lord's like, listen, I told you. You're safe with me. And one writer said, if only the Christian would realize that what was available to Paul visibly is spiritually and invisibly what God has done for us. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. We are uh, protected in a mighty way. And then the letter is kind of straight uh, forward there. And then also um, from verses 31, uh, carrying out, it just they, they get him up there. And there he is in custody, where he'll remain <laughs> in custody for two years there. And as he's waiting, the church may be praying for him release, but God is allowing something unpleasant to accomplish something God loves. There's going to be arguably more ministry done in the next five years and greater impact uh, to Christianity in these five years of imprisonment than his, all his years put together uh, of freedom. Why? Because he's evangelizing the prison system. He will, he will say to the Philippians, look at the under guard in Herod's palace. He will tell the Philippians in chapter 1, all of Herod's palace guard have been evangelized. And at the end of Philippians, he will say greetings from the brothers and Caesar's employ. So God has given this man great favor, an open door, though he's incarcerated. Not to mention, as I often mention, that he has time to write letters. And so he's going to write Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon while he's incarcerated. So my takeaway this morning, as we close out now, is, is that sometimes God will chain you, <laughs> chain us up, incarcerate us to something where God has an interest in redemption to make something better, to bless somebody, to strengthen the weak, or to save somebody's soul. Only we're chained there and we don't always know that we're chained there and God's not going to release us because there's something really good until that thing is accomplished, right? We need to understand that. So, I mean, I think of many things that I've been incarcerated to in my life and maybe you at your job or you're in a situation that you'd rather not be chained to at the moment, extended family problems, but you're incarcerated. The thing is there, you're stuck. 
Instead of looking down, you need to look up and around to see what God is doing in your incarceration, like Paul. Now, I close out with this. Um, uh, You know, 20 years ago, I got incarcerated with uh, with cancer. And I go through a lot of treatment. Uh, Six months of chemotherapy, a month of radiation, that failed. So then I had a bone marrow transplant, 63 days in the hospital at UCSF. That was 20 years ago. And let me clear it up before I forget to say I survived. (laughs) (laughs) But while I was incarcerated in a trial that I wanted to be free from, God was at work with so many uh, technicians, so many nurses, so many doctors, so many everybody, so many waiting rooms, so many just the opportunities were endless. And so one time, right at the end of my bone marrow transplant, right when I'm ready to get out, I've been transplanted with my own stem cells. They're just waiting for them to graft. And I'm like counting the days. And he's like, man, you should be grafting by now. And I'm like, I've been in here so long. I need to get out of here. God, deliver me. And my chains were there. So one day I was in the, they called it a solarium, the sunroom, right? And there was a couple in there, a young couple. We got to talking and he tells me that his dad was just air vacked in and he had a aneurysm and he's not expected to live. He's on life support, so we prayed. Now, a few days later, I'm whining, God, please get me out of here, and in walks the couple to my room. And they said, yeah, we found your room, and my dad's right down the hall on the other wing. Would you mind coming? I know you're a pastor, and praying we're gonna take him off life support and we want a pastor to be in the room. And I said, I'm in my jammies. <laughs> and I'm attached to a pole with six medications. And he said, would you mind? And I said, of course, I would love to come. So I pull the, pull the thing. We go down. They give me special clearance. And in I come. And he says, he introduces me standing in a gown, my jammies, with my pole. And the curtain opens, and it was so sad. The family gathered, and I got to share the gospel. A pin drop, kind of quiet, you know. Got to share the gospel and uh, pray over them, and they they uh, had their time with their dad. And as I was going back to the room, I was in there about an hour, And a nurse came in and said, good news, you grafted. You can go home. (laughs) And the Lord was like, I'm sorry that you had to stay that extra few days incarcerated, but I needed you. I needed you a few extra days in this trial. You know, look around you, man. You're in something. And God's got you there, and he's going, do you see it? Do you see it? You know, because when you do, you know, you get to minister, and then God moves you on and brings release. Let's pray together.
Father God, there's so many times when you've got us in something that's unpleasant for a really good and redemptive purpose. Help us to see that. It's not easy, God. Help us to know that you're good. You love us. You don't you want to harm us. They give us a hope and a future, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Brock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.